This evening, uh, we turn our attention again to the book of Daniel, the eighth chapter of Daniel. And for those of you who haven't been uh, with us for our previous studies in Daniel, let me begin uh, with a word of introduction or two. Daniel is a Jewish prophet, and the prophets were God's spokesmen uh, to his people and to the world, to the nations. And Daniel's career as a prophet was spent in exile in Babylon which is modern-day Iraq, and he served there the kings of his day, and he served the people of God who were in exile with him. And Daniel's ministry was taking place between uh, approximately 590 B.C. and 539 B.C. And when we last studied Daniel, Daniel chapter 7, we noted that the second half of, of the book of Daniel transitions uh, into a, a different style or a different mode of communication. And it's written in an apocalyptic style. An apocalyptic literature, uh, as we'll see again in chapter 8, it uses vivid imagery and dramatic language, and it uses symbols to, to speak of uh, these big themes and these cosmic realities. In, in apocalyptic literature, we're given a glimpse into heavenly realities. So you'll see this as we turn now to Daniel chapter 8. In the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar, a vision appeared to me, Daniel. After that, which appeared to me at the first. This is Daniel's second dream, the first one uh, being that which was recorded in chapter 7. And I saw in the vision, and when I saw, I was in Susa, the citadel, which is in the province of Elam. And I saw in the vision, and I was at the Ulai Canal. And I raised my eyes and saw, and behold, a ram standing on the bank of the canal. It had two horns, and both horns were high, but one was higher than the other, and the higher one came up last. I saw the ram charging westward and northward and southward. No beast could stand before him, and there was no one who could rescue from his power. He did as he pleased and became great. As I was considering, behold, a male goat from the west across, uh, came from the west across the face of the whole earth without touching the ground. Just a way of saying that it was, he flew as if he was going uh, very quickly. And the goat had a conspicuous or prominent horn between his eyes. He came to the ram with the two horns, which I had seen standing on the bank of the canal, and he, and he ran at him in his powerful wrath. I saw him come close to the ram, and he was enraged against him and struck the ram and broke his two horns. And the ram had no power to stand before him, but he cast him down to the ground and trampled on him. And there was no one who could rescue the ram from his power. And then the goat became exceedingly great, but when he was strong, the great horn was broken, and instead of it, there came up four conspicuous horns toward the four winds of heaven. Out of one of them came a little horn, which grew exceedingly great toward the south, toward the east, and toward the glorious land. And the glorious land here is a reference toward uh, of uh, reference to Jerusalem or Judea, the place where Daniel was from. It grew great, even to the host of heaven. And some of the host and some of the stars it threw down to the ground and trampled on them. 
It became great, even as great as the prince of the host. And the regular burnt offering was taken away from him, and the place of his sanctuary was overthrown. And a host will be given over to it, together with the regular burnt offering, because of transgression. And it will throw truth to the ground, and it will act and prosper. Then I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one said to the one who spoke, and these holy ones are are angelic messengers, For how long is the vision concerning the regular burnt offering, the transgression that makes desolate, and the giving over of the sanctuary and host to be trampled underfoot? And he said to me, For 2,300 evenings and mornings, and then the sanctuary shall be restored to its rightful state. When I, Daniel, had seen the vision, I sought to understand it. And behold, there stood before me one having the appearance of a man. And I heard a man's voice between the banks of the Ulai, and it called, Gabriel, make this man understand the vision. So he came near where I stood, and when he came, I was frightened and fell on my face. But he said to me, understand, O son of man, that the vision is for the time of the end. And when he had spoken to me, I fell into a deep sleep with my face to the ground. But he touched me and made me stand up. He said, Behold, I will make known to you what shall be at the latter end of the indignation, for it refers to the appointed time of the end. As for the ram that you saw with the two horns, these are the kings of Media and Persia. And the goat is the king of Greece. And the great horn between his eyes is the first king. As for the horn that was broken, in the place of which four others arose, four kingdoms shall arise from his nation." but not with his power. And at the latter end of their kingdom, when the transgressors have reached their limit, a king of bold face, one who understands riddles, shall arise. His power shall be great, but not by his own power. And he shall cause fearful destruction and and shall succeed in what he does and destroy mighty men and the people who are the saints." By his cunning he shall make deceit prosper under his hand, and in his own mind he shall become great. Without warning he shall destroy many, and he shall even rise up against the prince of princes, and he shall be broken, but by no human hand. The vision of the evenings and the mornings that has been told is true, but seal up the vision, for it refers to many days from now. And I, Daniel, was overcome and lay sick for some days. And then I arose and went about the king's business. But I was appalled by the vision and did not understand it. With that, let's ask for the Lord's help. Father in heaven, as we come to this passage, which uh, may appear perplexing, baffling, we ask for your help because we know you have given to us this word for a reason. And you have given this word to us so that your people might be built up in faith, strengthened and fortified to live life in this world, that we might be trusting in you, resting in you, and in your care for us. And so, Lord, I pray that you would use this time and you would use your word to go forth and do that in your people. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.
I want to uh, begin uh, tonight by sketching for you two pictures that will begin to capture the emotional freight that Daniel's vision carried uh, for the people of God. For the first snapshot, I want to take you to the beautiful city of Edinburgh in Scotland. It's a city uh, rich with history. If you go to the historic old town which stands at the heart of the city, you'll see there the, the giant stone castle which, which overlooks the city. And beneath the castle and the surrounding areas, uh, you'll see all sorts of, of historic buildings and, and you will see uh, uh, many historic churches, these beautiful old churches that are made out of old stone and, and decorated with beautiful glass and if you were to walk through uh, the Old Town, uh, down South Bridge, and if you were to... All right. Very good. And if you were to walk uh, 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 down the Cowgate, these uh, wonderful Scottish street names, you would come across uh, one of these old churches. And if you were to walk there, as I did, uh, you would see this, this old church with a bell tower that rose several stories high. And I remember as I was, uh, this particular church, I remember it quite, quite, All right, is that better? Good. It was working well, so I must have done something wrong. So, so uh, as I was saying, if you were to, to uh, this, there's this particular church in, in the heart of uh, the old town, and I remember that as I was uh, walking one day, I saw this church, and my eyes began to, to uh, trace up the bell tower, and I was shocked by what I saw. On this bell tower, there was a sign that identified this historic church, and it read this. It read, Sin Nightclub. Sin Nightclub. There, this historic church had this sign that said, Sin Nightclub, and these letters were, were pasted on a sign that, that had a picture of this uh, voluptuous angel falling into flames. So here is this building a place where redeemed sinners were to come at one point to meet with God and worship, and it had been transformed into a place that promoted itself as a place for sinners to meet up, to hook up, and to indulge their basest and most perverted desires. What thoughts would be running through your head as you stared at this old church and and you saw it as a self-proclaimed club of sin. Or to make it more personal for you, let me sketch a second picture. Imagine that next week you drove into the, the parking lot on Sunday morning at 9.15, 9.20, 9.29, not saying any names, 
And as you pull into the church parking lot, you see emblazoned on the building a star, a crescent, and a sign that identified the building as a mosque. What would be your reaction to seeing the place where you had regularly met with God, where you had sung songs of praise to Jesus, where you had heard of his atoning work for sinners, where you had laid your eyes upon the Lord's Supper, where that work is represented, what would be your reaction to seeing this place transformed into a space intended to promote the denial of those very realities? How would you feel to see the place where you came together with other Christians to worship God, to see that place sullied and polluted and perverted in one of the ways mentioned above? How would you feel? Sickened? Mortified? Horrified? Confused? How could this be? How could God let this happen? perhaps a little angry. Why would God let this happen? Is he paying attention? Shouldn't he care? See, only in these two sketches are we we beginning to get a taste of what it was going to feel like for the Jewish people when the events in Daniel's vision transpired. Daniel 8 predicted not only the rise and fall of empires, but it it predicted uh, the desecration of of the temple of God. There was only one temple. There was only one place where God had said, here I will make uh, my special dwelling. And Daniel receives this prophetic vision, a vision that will come to pass several centuries later. And in this vision, it's a vision of evil, God-opposing forces profaning and violating God's earthly dwelling. This is a shocking vision. It's a devastating vision. It's a dream that shows a horrible day, a dark day in the history of God's people, a day in which complete wickedness seems to have triumphed. But here's God's great purpose in giving us this prophetic vision as he gives it to Daniel. Are you ready for this? Here's the purpose. God warns his people that great evil is coming. But he reassures his people that he, the Lord of history, has placed immovable limits on evil. That the Lord of history has placed immovable limits on evil. This is the purpose of Daniel's dream. Now, if you're here tonight and you're not a Christian, perhaps you're someone who's just spiritually curious, asking questions, this passage might seem quite strange to you. But uh, don't worry, this, probably, uh, uh, this passage is probably quite strange to most of us here, so don't feel like you're alone. But I want to encourage you, if you're not a Christian here tonight, to pay attention to two things. First, I want you to see that one of the reasons that Christians have for taking the Bible to be a revelation from God is the fulfillment of biblical prophecy. So if Daniel is able to reliably predict specific global events centuries before they happen, what would you make of Daniel's claims to have received this information from God? What are you going to do with that? But secondly, I want you to consider that uh, how this passage speaks to the Bible's explanation for God's relationship to evil in the world. 
For many people, this is, is a, a one particular hang-up or barrier in terms of making sense of God. But I want you to see part of the Bible's explanation for God's relationship to evil in the world. Now, my outline uh, for this evening comes in two main parts. It follows the, the uh, outline of the vision. First, the warring beasts, uh, the ram and the goat. And secondly, the little horn. The warring beasts will show us that Daniel's God is in fact the Lord of history, and the little horn will show us that the Lord of history sets limits on evil. Now when we turn our attention to Daniel chapter 8, the prophet of Daniel has already been in exile for 47 years. And we know from the dates in the other part of the book that he'll remain in exile for at least another 14 years. Now in Daniel 7, Daniel is given a, a vision of four beasts. And God has given Daniel a glimpse of the future rise and fall of kingdoms. He's given Daniel a glimpse uh, into the opposition that will take place against God and his people. And he's given Daniel a glimpse uh, of the final victory that God will obtain and give to the Son of Man and his saints. Now in the vision uh, that Daniel has in chapter 8, he's transported to Susa, the capital of the Persian Empire. And there, Daniel will be given a glimpse into future events. But unlike chapter 7, here, Daniel is, in his dream, is, is given a picture of two empires, not four. And they're symbolized by the beasts. There's the ram with the two uneven horns, which we're told in the interpretation symbolizes uh, Media and Persia. And then there's the goat with this single, clearly visible horn protruding from its forehead. And this animal represents the Greek empire. Now, in this dream, God told Daniel that the Medo-Persian Empire would conquer Babylon. And this would happen 12 years after this dream. At the time of Daniel's dream, Cyrus, the king of Persia, had only begun uh, his his, uh, global expansion, proceeding westward toward Asia Minor and then southward toward uh, Egypt. And by 539 BC, as God foretold in the dream, Medo-Persia would conquer Babylon. It would prove to be a force that no one could stand before, and Babylon falls to the Persians. But just as Daniel's dream didn't end there, with Persia as the top dog, so also was the case with the unfolding of history. Again, just as God had foretold, the Medo-Persian Empire would suddenly and totally be smashed by the kingdom of Greece. Now, pictured in Daniel's dream as a male goat coming from the west, Greece was led by a prominent and powerful king symbolized by the horn in the vision, and and Greece would cut through all opposition so swiftly it it, it was as if its armies flew from victory to victory. And this goat would, uh, with its great horn, was so powerful, we read, uh, that not even Medo-Persia was able to stand before its formidable power. And you can go to your local library, you can go to Google, and you can uh, research the events of ancient history to see that things happened exactly as Daniel foretold they would happen, or as, exactly as he saw in his vision several centuries before they did. Now, notice that Daniel makes and records predictions that are historically verifiable. And so I want to take the next few minutes to show just how Daniel's vision accurately depicts how history will unfold. History matters. God is is giving Daniel a vision of things, and it matters whether it comes true or not. So, 
the Persian Empire gives way to the Greek Empire led by the son uh, of Philip of Macedonia, whose name was Alexander. And Alexander's successes and victories were uh, so many and so impressive that he is known to you, not just as Alexander, but as Alexander the Great. And Alexander the Great is the conspicuous horn of Daniel's vision. And starting in 334 B.C., Alexander marched into Asia and he overwhelmed the Persian armies and he devastated them in the span of just three years. Alexander's armies were so powerful. And Alexander defeated the Persians and then his, his army would press to the east toward uh, Pakistan and towards India uh, so that he would eventually, uh, his, his empire would cover the face of the known world, just as we see the vision say in verse 5. Now, Daniel's dream is further correct in its predictions about Alexander. As Alexander grew in power, his pride continued to swell until the point where Alexander uh, believed that he was, in fact, a god. Uh, one encyclopedia that I read spoke of how Alexander was so convinced of his own divinity that he insisted that other people accept it as well, sometimes with Snickers. And it was at the height of his power when Alexander was strong, as verse 8 says, that in the year 323, uh, 323 BC, when Alexander was just 33 years old, that Alexander died quite suddenly, just as the vision foretold. As in Daniel's vision, though, after Alexander's sudden death, his empire was divided in, uh, amongst his, his generals, and there were four main kingdoms that came from it. And here, Daniel's vision narrows its focus to just one of these successors symbolized by the little horn. And this little horn, which is so peculiar in the vision, is a reference to the Seleucid king Antiochus IV. Antiochus IV, or Antiochus Epiphanes, as he was called, a name which he adopted because he too thought he was the earthly manifestation of God. So you're noticing a theme here. And Antiochus and the Seleucids would gain control over Daniel's homeland, Judea, in 198 B.C. But due to a, a military defeat that they sustained, they became uh, financially uh, strained. They were hard up for cash. And this is important, uh, as we'll see momentarily. Meanwhile, in Judea, an ambitious man named Menelaus had set his sights on the high priesthood. He decided, hey, that looks like a good position. I'm going to go for it, even though he was not from the right line to get the job. But he knew that money talks. So you remember that financial strain that I just mentioned, uh, that the, the, the ruling empire of the Seleucids had. Well, when Menelaus comes to the Seleucid king Antiochus, he comes with a large bribe and he says, hey, if I give you all this cash, you give me the priesthood. And suddenly, surprisingly, Antiochus becomes uh, very interested in the temple politics of the Jews. And so he installs Menelaus as priest. And the Jews are greatly uh, upset by Antiochus's meddling in their affairs. So much so that as soon as the opportunity presents itself, they, they uh, try and give the boot to the man that Antiochus had installed, and they try and install the previous guy. 
And Antiochus, not surprisingly, is not impressed. And he descends upon Judea with his armies and he destroys the city walls of Jerusalem and he sacks the temples, uh, uh, emptying its treasuries of all its treasure. And now this is really important, okay? So pay attention. Worst of all, Antiochus decided not just to empty the temple of its treasure as had done previously by other invaders, but Antiochus decided that he could change the loyalties of the Jews by changing their religion. And so Antiochus goes marching into the temple of God and he converts it into a temple to the God of Zeus. Josephus, the ancient historian, tells us that Antiochus Epiphanes entered the temple of the Lord and there he built his own altar and he sacrificed on that altar a pig, which would have been ceremonially unclean and unthinkable even to enter the temple. He sacrifices this pig to the God of Zeus. And he forces the people to abandon their worship of the Lord. And he, he, he causes them to, to stop things like circumcision and the like, parts of, of the Jewish religion. The daily sacrifices in the temple to the Lord were also halted. All this foretold in the vision that Daniel had. And it's at precisely this moment, the, the moment that, it's this moment that the vision has been building up to, or we might say descending down toward. It's the desecration of the temple of God, and it's the arrogance of King Antiochus toward God and toward his people and toward God's place. In this terrible act, the little horn sets himself against the people of God uh, the host of heaven, he sets himself against God. He sets himself against the sanctuary, overthrowing it, as we see in verse 11. Now, that's the history. But viewed from, uh, apart from Daniel's vision, if you did not have Daniel's vision, the Jews at the time of Antiochus's war on the worship of God and the people of God, they would have been left to wonder what happened. If there was ever a time where God was going to intervene, if, if there was ever a time where God was going to do something to, to maybe not stop a great evil, but suddenly and swiftly strike down the perpetrator of evil, this would surely be the reason. If ever there was a just cause for God to take up and for him to uphold, it was to stop the defilement of his own house of worship. It was to smash Antiochus before his, his feet crossed the threshold of the temple. This was God's moment. But the heavens were eerily silent on that day as Antiochus' footsteps rang through the temple and as he walked to the altar of the Lord, constructed an altar to Zeus and in defiance of God and out of hatred for God's people as Antiochus had his way. We know from ancient sources that, that some Jews, pious Jews, resisted Antiochus's desecrating activity and they rebelled against his attempts to ban the worship of the Lord. And they suffered greatly and many were martyred. And here too, those who, who, as, as those who cared about the name of the Lord were slaughtered, the heavens seemingly did not stir. How could God let what was supposedly so precious to him, his honor, his temple, his people, how could God let his precious things be so terribly 
violated. Now, one inference that people could take from this was uh, from the desolation of the temple was that God saw, but he didn't care. An argument against God's goodness. Another inference that could be drawn was that uh, God uh, uh, cared, but he couldn't do anything to stop Antiochus's raging, and an argument against God's power. A third inference could be for the heavens ringing silent was that heaven was in fact empty, and God didn't do anything because God wasn't actually there, an argument against God's existence. Now at this point, we need to pause and say that some of us can perhaps relate to this, right? We've seen obvious, explicit evil. We've experienced obvious, terrible evil. I'm not talking about the sort of thing that's sort of morally ambiguous or, or, or tricky, but we've felt clear, unmitigated evil. We've read reports of, of, of Christians meeting in Indonesia, as happened recently, going to worship only to be blown up by wicked men and women. Some of you have, have encountered the chilling evil of someone who you were supposed to be able to trust mistreating you and abusing you. Or some have, have watched as, as wicked folks befriended your son or befriended your daughter and under their influence, those lips which once so sweetly sang songs like Jesus love me are now lips that blaspheme God and speak all sorts of evil. And in this moment, as we feel the breakers of evil surge over us, we think that if there was a time where God would step in, it would be now. But evil seems to have its way. And we're left to stare, perhaps with confusion, perhaps with anger, perhaps with overwhelming sadness, as it seems that heaven sits still. But it's precisely for this reason that God sends this awesome vision to Daniel. God gives Daniel a glimpse into future events so that he could show his suffering people that he is the sovereign Lord, not only over history, but just as importantly, he is the sovereign Lord even over evil. God shows Daniel specific events in the future so that God's people could see that, that God is reliable not only in what he says about history and its unfolding, but they could see that God was reliable in a second critical point, and that's this, that the Lord of history sovereignly sets limits over evil. That the Lord sets limits upon evil's time, upon evil's intensity, upon evil's scope, so that it cannot be exceeded. God's warning his people that while evil still uh, might come, it's under his strict limits. Do you notice in the passage the, the many ways that God indicates to Daniel the, that the horrible evil that will come is limited? That the evil that will befall his place and his people is limited. We see the evil horn is limited in his power. The evil horn, Antiochus, would rise up and he would exercise destructive power. There, there's no denying that. Verse 10, he raises himself up against the host of heaven. He tramples some stars underfoot. Verse 24, he, he causes a fearful destruction and he succeeds in what he does. He destroys mighty men and he destroys uh, some of the saints. 
So God is saying, he's warning Daniel and his people that evil is great and it has great destructive power. The vision is very honest about what life in the world looks like for the people of God. It's honest about the continuing power and reality of evil in the world. But though the enemy of God, the little horn, has real power, this is a strictly limited power. Look at verse 24. Antiochus Epiphanes, the great enemy of God and his people, would rise up and he would be made great, but not by his own power. This is a theme that we've seen throughout the book of Daniel with Nebuchadnezzar in chapter 2. The very power that, that, that Antiochus had to rage against God is in fact given to him by God. The wicked Antiochus comes to power by God's own decree. And at the same time, God in his wisdom and in his power, he, he bounds uh, Antiochus's wickedness. And he orders it so that even Antiochus's wickedness, his, his desire for great evil, even this would result in the magnification of God's power and God's grace. But the little horn is also limited in the evil that he can do in terms of its time. And this is an even greater emphasis in the vision. See in verses 17 and 19, the angelic messenger who interprets the dream for Daniel indicates that this vision is for the time of the end. And that, uh, the dream makes known, that, uh, it goes on to say that it's for the latter end of the indignation, for it retur- re- refers to the appointed time of the end. Now, the end here is not referring to sort of the, the end of the world, as some have taken it, but the end here is the end of the terrible evil that will take place under Antiochus. It's the answer to the question in verse 13, uh, where, where the Holy Ones say, how long? How long is this vision? How long is the giving over of the sanctuary? How long is the affliction of the hosts? So in other words, God is giving to Daniel a a vision of the time that he, the Lord, has appointed to bring the wickedness of Antiochus to its end. And we also have a reference, I'm sure you picked it up, to the, the 2300 evenings and mornings in verse 14. It's a peculiar reference. Uh, uh, and now some people have taken this to refer to 2,300 days. Some people have taken it to half that number because it's a morning and an evening. Uh, and so they uh, take it to be a little over 1,000 days. Some have taken it to be a general symbolic representation. But the central point that you need to get here with this number is that it's a specific number and God has set a specific limit a specific time limit that he would allow Antiochus and his evil to pollute the temple. Yes, for the Jews who were experiencing this horrible devastation, this would have seemed like a long time as they experienced the desolation, as they experienced the persecution. But God was warning his people in advance that he had drawn immovable, fixed limits upon the wickedness of his enemies. The God who who governs history also governs evil, and and he bounds it. He limits evil's power, and he limits evil's time. Now, um, some of you might have uh, dogs. Now, I suppose that's uh, your choice. We believe in Christian liberty and all that. I don't quite get it, but uh, you might own dogs. And uh, some dog owners invest in Uh, those systems called invisible fences. I don't know if you've ever seen those. 
uh, where they, they install some sort of crazy mechanism in their house and it transmits a signal and they place boundary markers uh, around their property and then they set a shock collar on their dog so that uh, if their dog goes to cross the boundary that's been established by this kooky system, the dog's going to get a shock in its neck and it's stopped in its tracks. Well, God's message to Daniel and to his people after Daniel and to us today is that God has installed the system, he has set the boundaries, he has put the shock collar on evil, and he has bounded it according to his holy purposes so that evil cannot exceed its limits. Now, just like with the, with the invisible fence thing, from our perspective, uh, uh, we might not see the exact boundaries that God has set. It might appear to us um, um, just like when the, the growling German shepherd is running toward us, uh, that evil is running rampant, that we're in trouble, uh, that we're just about to be overwhelmed and devoured. But Daniel's vision says it's not true. God in Daniel 8 is giving God's people a glimpse into cosmic heavenly realities to assure his people that even when wickedness of arrogant men like Antiochus Epiphanes is going on, it is a bound evil. It is, and the boundaries have been determined by God's perfect purposes. Now, is this merely wishful thinking? Is this just something we say, maybe a, a, a pious thought? No, no. You see, if God could bear reliable testimony to the rise and fall of kingdoms that would happen hundreds of years from the time he gives the vision to Daniel, should we not also take him at his word when he says that he is carefully, wisely, limited and bounded evil according to his purposes? See, if God could foreordain and if he could foretell the rising and fall of world empires, then shouldn't we trust that God has also set his hand upon evil? He has set bounds around evil and he set his timer upon evil so that evil shall never exceed his holy limits. This doesn't mean that evil never uh, uh, overwhelms us or, or uh, inflicts us with its cruel barbs. No, Daniel's vision includes the destruction of mighty men and some of the, the, the saints of God. But evil never overwhelms God. Evil never overwhelms God. Evil is like a toxic river that has to run within the banks that God has carved for it. And ultimately, the vision says, not only does evil, is, is evil bound by God's holy purposes, but ultimately evil uh, is broken. It comes to its end. God sets out a final end on evil. In verse 25, where, where the evil uh, horn Antiochus, uh, he, he is broken. God puts an end to the opposition. Now, but it's quite likely that some of you are, are wondering why. Just like Daniel at the end of his dream, we can understand um, intellectually what the dream was meant to convey, and yet we still don't understand why. How could this be that God would do this? Would God actually um, bound evil but allow evil to, 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 to touch us, to, to, to have its cold hands set upon us? Maybe you agree that, that God sets his bounds on evil, but why does God draw the lines where he does? Why does he let things that are supposedly so precious to him be profaned and mistreated? Why would God permit evil to get the upper hand? 
here in, in, in his temple in Daniel chapter 8 under Antiochus or in other things that, that you experience. Right? We ask this as we, we see evil seemingly get the victory. Would God actually do this? But the answer to that is yes. Yes, because we don't, even, we don't just have this, this vision that God has given to, to Daniel in Daniel chapter 8, but we could look ahead for there was a, an even more abominable act of desolation that God foretold. He warned his people of an act that was inexcusable in its horror and in its scandal, an act that would, in its grotesque nature, would even exceed Antiochus's desolation of the temple of God. It was a darker day, a day where evil seemingly gained its greatest triumph. It was a, it was a time where, where, not where God's place was desecrated and profaned, but it was, it was a time where God himself, Jesus, the God-man, was given over into the hands of evil men to be mocked and to be spat upon and to be beaten and to be humiliated and to be hung exposed upon a cross to die. Would God allow evil to touch what was precious to him? The answer is yes. God's precious son was mauled by the forces of evil as heavenly seemed eerily silent. Was it because God didn't care? No. It wasn't because God didn't care. This was God's son with whom he was well pleased. Was it because God couldn't intervene? No, it's not that at all. This act, uh, this abominable act, just like the act of Antiochus, was according to his foreknowledge and his foreordination, as Peter tells us in Acts 2. Jesus would be given over unto death. He would be given over to the enemies of God. But even in that act, God had set his bounds upon this evil action as he would raise Jesus from the dead, as he would, as, as he would uh, tell evil, you could go no further, as he would break the power of Satan, sin, and death. Just as he, he would break the horn of Antiochus in history, we, we see ultimately Jesus breaking the horn of evil in his resurrection. So if you're a Christian, look at this passage and take courage. Life in this world is difficult. It's hard. Evil is truly destructive. But if you belong to God, you belong not only to the Lord who governs uh, kings and governs kingdoms, but you belong to the Lord of history who, who even prescribes limits on the kingdom of darkness. Evil and its forces, Satan, sin, and death are, are bounded. They're leashed by God. So that if God will allow evil to touch you, it's not because God doesn't care, it's not because God doesn't love you, but it's because God has set the bounds and he intends to use that dark day and to turn it for your everlasting good and for his glory. And then we know the great hope that just like in the vision, evil too ultimately one day will completely be broken and God shall have the victory. And we, his people, shall enjoy the rest that he has won for us. Let's pray. Father in heaven, 
we recognize, we feel that life in this world is hard. And Lord, we might be tempted to draw all sorts of false inferences from this about your action or uh, what we perceive to be your inaction. But we thank you, Lord, for this vision in Daniel chapter 8, which speaks to your power not only to rise up, uh, raise up empires and, and cast them down, but your power to, to place your holy bounds upon evil, to limit it, to govern it, to, to use it even to accomplish your great purposes. Lord, I pray that as we, as we go through this world, that you would give us faith to see that, to trust that, to rest in your sovereign care and protection for your people. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.